Welcome to episode 59 of The Roger Snipe Show. Thank you for tuning in to The Roger Snipe Show. The aim of each episode is to leave you feeling more informed than when you started. You can expect a vast array of subjects from functional medicine to economic developments. Each week, I'll be interviewing experts in different fields to bring you an awesome show. The Roger Snipes Show. Yo, what's going on, peeps? Hope all is good. So today, very interesting uh, subject and very relevant for how life is right now. And it is about immunity. So the, the topic is on immunity, how to build a robust immune system. And the person I have on today is Dr. James D. Nicol Antonio. <laughs> it took me a while to get used to his surname. I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is a really long surname. <laughs> and I think I've mastered it now. Hopefully I didn't um, butcher it up. But yeah, so we unravel the major importance of having a strong immune system. And I guess the misconceptions of what it means to have a strong immune system. For example, with the current pandemic, many people think all you need is a vaccination. But the truth is, if you have any kind of metabolic damage, then you're still prone to sickness or disease, which is very important to understand. Um, so yeah, we, we cover much of that. But before I get into the introduction of James, I just want to make a single mention, or you could say a sponsor of the show, which is Omnos. Now, as you guys know, I'm all about optimal health. It's great to look in the mirror and feel confident about the way you look, but it's also important to know that you're doing the right things and you don't have to make any unnecessary visits to the doctor. This is where Omnos comes in. It's an intelligent health system which is designed to look at major core aspects of your life where they can analyze your biomarkers and major influences of your wellness. After, you, after you've uh, completed a self-assessment, they can design a plan that is suited for you. So you can discover and learn what things about your genetics or microbiome, for instance, and then learn how to target and optimize with the right habitual changes. For more detailed information, just visit omnos.me. So omnos is spelled O-M for mother, N for November, O for Oscar, S for Sierra, and use coupon code SNIPES10 for 10% off your test. Okay, so it's um it's great to speak with James again. I've had him on the show before where we, I think we spoke about two of his books, um, The Salt Fix and I can't remember the other one, but we actually talk about it briefly in the interview. And... Um, yeah, it's great to have him on again. This guy is just so informed. He knows so much stuff and he's constantly learning. And well, he's a doctor. So that's that's what you do, right? 
And uh, he gives so much information on social media alone, you could only imagine what the book is, which we're going to talk about, which is called The Immunity Fix. Now, this book is co-written by someone called Seamland, who is a very smart performance coach forward slash biohacker. So James himself is a well-respected and internationally known scientist and an expert on health and nutrition. He's an author and a co-author of over 250 publications in the medical literature. Anyways, let's bring on Dr. James D. Nickel Antonio. Hey James, how you doing my friend? Good Roger, how are you? Good, 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 good. So uh, I think lockdown should be ending in UK soon. I don't know. They, they call it lockdown 2.0 here. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a 3.0. Most likely will be. Um, so I think on the second, we should be <laughs> released from our cages so that we could run wild. What's it like in, uh, in the States? So in the States right now, there, there are no quote unquote necessarily lockdowns, but um, the recommendations are that you really shouldn't be gathering for Thanksgiving besides your, with only the people that live in your house. So, you know, the, essentially um, it's not like you're mandated, like you can't, you know, move around or, or about the country, but they are trying to limit the spread during the holidays. Right, right. I guess it sort of makes sense, but it's, it's pretty difficult. Like you guys got Thanksgiving coming up. Is it tomorrow? Yes. Yep. And then obviously we've got Christmas. So how are they going to work around that? Like what's, what's the plan there? So essentially um, the, the guidelines are saying to not have more than 10 family members in one household um, to limit the spread and to try to not have um, anyone outside your immediate family over for the holidays. And, you know, inherently we kind of, you know, as human beings, we don't like when there's mandates and we don't like lockdowns who does. Right. Mm. And so I, I sort of, most of my podcasts, I typically just talk about like the, the beneficial nutrients for immunity based on the, the book um, or like what you can do for metabolic health. But a ton of people also really care about how is this spread and do masks work? And I do think it's an important conversation to have because it's something that you can also do and that may determine whether you get, you know, COVID or not. And I think it's important during this time too, because we don't have available real good medical treatments for it and we don't have a vaccine. So if you can sort of wait it out, if you're metabolically sick or, or you're older, um, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Right. And of course us as human beings don't want to infect our grandparents or people who are much more susceptible as well. So, but I mean, I would say like the first question is, do asymptomatic people transmit the, the virus? There's a huge debate about this. And the second thing we could talk about is do masks work? Like cloth masks in just the community, the regular community. So um, in, in a quick summary, yes, with SARS-CoV-2, absolutely asymptomatic 
uh, people can transmit the virus. If only symptomatic people could transmit the virus, you wouldn't see a global pandemic. So how this is different than SARS-CoV-1 is only 8,000 people got infected. And that's because SARS-CoV-1, you were only transmittable once you were symptomatic. That's why SARS-CoV-1 fizzled out after 8,000 infections. We have what, over, I don't know, around 50 million infections now with SARS-CoV-2. That would not happen if it was only transmittable if you were symptomatic. Because if you're symptomatic, you're much more likely to stay at home. But we also have studies that prove this too. So there's been studies that there was a one really good study in a skilled nursing facility where they tested these individuals. Um, they were asymptomatic, and, um, but they were positive for SARS-CoV-2. And 70% ended up uh, becoming symptomatic. So essentially, and they all had, when they tested them, viable virus, and they were all shedding virus. So what, we, what does that mean? So essentially, one recent study from Wuhan came out, and it said that 300 asymptomatic people were found, and none of them, none of their close contacts got the virus. So a lot of people were using that as saying asymptomatic people can't transmit the virus. But when they tested them, they cultured them for actual viable virus, not a single person in those asymptomatic people even had viable virus. And 40% actually were negative when they tested them for antibodies. So what, so what I'm saying is, is you can be quote unquote asymptomatic simply because the test is wrong or you don't even have viable virus. Okay, so, so some studies will show that asymptomatic people don't seem to be transmitting if you find a population that doesn't even have viable virus. Whereas you can, if you find the people that actually have viable virus and are asymptomatic, of those people can transmit because they eventually become symptomatic in 70% of the cases. And from the meta-analyses, it's been estimated that about 20% of all infections are due to, are probably due to these asymptomatic trans transmissions. How many percent? About 20%. 20. But I mean, the main, the, the main, the main thing here is too. So, so it, it's, it's definitely happening that you can transmit and you don't even know it. So you can't just assume that because you're not symptomatic, you don't have COVID and you can't give it to someone, which is why they're mandating face masks, right? But I think it shouldn't be a global lockdown because COVID seems to be different than influenza in that a lot of these cases are being driven by what are called super spreaders. So essentially 20% of COVID cases are driving the rest, are driving the 80% of infections. So if you can target the super spreaders, which when I say a super spreader, it's essentially a condition where you are gathered in a large group of people and there is poor ventilation and you're talking really loudly and projecting virus. So at a bar, right, at a concert, at a church, you're singing and projecting. This is where all these hotspots are coming from. And the countries that are doing well with COVID, like Sweden and Japan, they targeted, they didn't do full lockdowns, they targeted the super spreading events. So Sweden put a limit of 50 people um, gathering indoors. And when other European countries were uh, getting rid of those limits, Sweden maintained it. 
maintain those limits on large indoor gatherings to stop the super spreading. And they also took all high school and college students virtual, which is the opposite of what we did in the U.S. Because when you're, when you're a high schooler or you're in college, you're more likely to go out when you're sick. So those are super spreaders as well. So a lot of people have used Sweden. Like Sweden didn't do a lockdown and they did great. They didn't do a lockdown, but what they did was is they targeted the super spreaders. Mm. And so did Japan. And so that's sort of probably the best strategy is target those super spreaders. Don't shut down the entire economy. Um, but it's the people that aren't wearing the masks in those types of poorly ventilated, largely populated um, buildings that are, are the main drivers of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on the whole mask thing? Do you think masks are working? I've had so many different views on that. Some yeah. people say, oh, no, yeah, but it's, it's not going to work because viruses are too small and they can get through it. And then there's some people that say, well, it will s- slow the transmission down so it is worth it. And you hear people saying, oh, I can't breathe very well. It's like, um, uh, I don't know, uh, hypoxic. And there's so many different views. Like from, from a medical sense, what would you say, for, you know, from a doctor's perspective? So the studies are clear that it's being transmitted through respiratory droplets which the masks have been shown to reduce the amount of respiratory droplets that contain the virus. Um, And all the observational or retrospective studies are very clear that wearing a mask seems to reduce the community spread by about 70%. Now the clinical studies is where people kind of get confused because it's very easy for a study to fail. If you don't do everything right, Let's, let's not even take masks, for example. Let's just take a supplement. If you don't give the right dose at the right time or in the right patient population, you can get a negative result on a supplement study. And, but that doesn't mean the supplement doesn't work because then the next study could use the correct dose in the right population and it works. So what I'm saying is, is for the clinical studies, if you actually look, the, the evidence is divided. Some say that it works. We don't really have good randomized studies of cloth masks in the community for COVID, but we do have randomized studies on other like preventing influenza and things like that. And the reason why some studies show benefit and others don't is if you look at the studies that fail, most of those studies, they weren't even wearing their masks half the time or they weren't wearing it correctly. And so that's the, even I was confused. I was like, geez, if some show that it works and some don't, then it's not definitive. We don't know. But it's very difficult. If something doesn't work, you're never going to see multiple studies showing positive beneficial results. Mm. You, you may see negative results if, the, if it's not used correctly, but you would never see multiple studies showing that it works if it truly didn't work. Um, so we need to understand that a negative result doesn't mean that something doesn't work if there's numerous positive tests that show that it does. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, got you, got you. Yeah. It took me a while to honestly figure that to figure this out in my head. Is is there a, is there a major difference between the the surgical masks and the, and the cloth ones? And I see I see people wearing those shields. <laughs> yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, that's great. The shield. I mean, it looks it looks bizarre, but I honestly would probably wear a, would rather wear a shield than like a mask because the mask is a little more like suffocating. Um, but you just look very bizarre wearing a shield. It, it looks like a like a welding mask, doesn't it? Yeah. The first time I saw that, I was like, what? What, are you afraid that people are going to spit in your face? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I got it's it's certainly a, a better barrier, right? And it's it's covering the eyes too. Um, but to your point, there is a difference, but it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal in the community. Um, whereas if you're in a hospital setting with really sick people shedding a ton of virus, then a surgical mask seems to beat a you know regular community mask. But out in the actual general population, the studies show that the club, you know, these masks, these general masks seem to be just as good as like an NS5. Mm. Well, that's, that's interesting because there's so many different ones and I've always wondered, does it make a difference? What I do find is the, um, the, the clinical ones, they do tend to uh, lose their, um, I don't know if construction. Yeah. The suction to the face and the, the fitting. Yeah. 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 That's right. And I always uh, wonder whether, it's one of those where you have to use it and bin it immediately. You can't use that again, right? Like yeah, exactly. It does. Yeah, it should be. It should be fitted. And the reason why you really want those types is because you're like as a as a doctor, you're bent over on these really sick COVID patients. Like you need to have a really good seal. And you know, it seems to be that those types of masks work much better in that type of setting. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Mm. Well, okay. So we're going to talk about your book, which you uh, co-wrote with Seam. Yep. You've written a few other books. You're the author of The Salt Fix um, and um, The Longevity Solution. Yeah. <laughs> there, is a, there is another one as well. Superfuel. Yeah, yes. Superfuel is the other one. Yeah. Superfuel. And uh, so you was on episode 41 and we was mainly discussing about the longevity solution and, and the salt fix. Right. And um, yeah, it's so good that you, you and Seam have come out with this book. I mean, couldn't have come at a better time in all fairness. You know, obviously immunity um, hasn't been as important as it is now. Um, we seem to have an abundance of uh, information, but um a, a deficiency in clarification you know mm. uh, yeah. you know you go to google you can get everything there but it's just all confusing and it's all conflicting and it's like oh, what, what, what's right anymore like you know everybody's got so many different views um so you've got this book which pretty much summarizes how you can have a, a, a robust immune system. I get it's got all the answers in there. Um, this is me kind of genetically putting it or generically putting it. Um, could you give me, what was the motivation behind this exactly? Was it because of the pandemic or is it something you two have been talking about for a while? Or what, what made you think about it? I mean, you've done the salt fix and these other books, even the longevity solution, which covers a lot of, things to 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 think about in terms of immunity so why this book well I mean, obviously of course the pandemic was part of the motivation but the other part of the motivation is is like the media is only covering masks or vaccines or social distancing and there's like a huge key piece that people need to understand which the immunity fix covers and that is your metabolic health determines your own immune health and your own nutrient status also determines how well you handle a viral infection. And so ultimately, you can't fix how old you are, but you can fix a low vitamin D level, 
which is significantly associated with a higher risk of dying or having a poor COVID outcome. And so uh, I started doing uh, some research and pub uh, publishing actually a few academic papers on these topics of how we were, how we thought this virus was leading to thrombotic or clotting complications, which we, we had shown that this is probably due to oxidative stress. And then um, uh, sort of these clots coming from this damaged endothelium and putting out some papers on nutraceuticals, like supplements that uh, have been shown in other types of RNA viruses to have benefit. And so I figured, well, these publications are great, but not a lot of people read scientific journals and may not even have access to these articles. So I might as well take my research and put it into a book. And it ended up turning into a almost 2,500 reference book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How do you find the time to write all the time? Do you write something every single day? <laughs> I try. I try to. Yeah. Early in the morning, weekends, nights. That's awesome. So let's look at uh, immunity. Now, I would say, I don't know, uh, metaphorically, it's like a, a firewall against Trojan horses and uh, um, or what do you call those things? Um, malware um, <laughs> of the world. It's your shield, right? It's your shields against the virus. Yeah. You, but you can build those shields, you know, because you have mucous membranes and you have um, layers of skin and epithelium and endothelium. Um, the health of those determine how well the virus can access your body and, you know, nutrients control the tight junctions between these cells and how healthy your cells are and our how healthy they're resistant to stress and your nutrient level and your metabolic health determines all of this and how well you can even produce immune cells from your bone marrow. And so if people can start thinking about immunity, not as a mask or a vaccine and that there's nothing you can do about it besides that and start actually building your immune system from the inside out through diet, exercise, nutrition, sunlight, sauna, I think, it'll help out a lot more people, not just from a, a immunity viral perspective, but also the leading killers in the Western world, which is cardiovascular disease, cancer, type two diabetes, obesity, doing the things we discuss in the book have been shown obviously to impact that as well. Mm -hmm. As you was talking there, so many things was coming in my head and like, you know, I think you mentioned like metabolic flexibility and I was thinking, I don't know how to put it, but I think that sometimes people are too sensitive when you say you're holding on too much fat. Like you need to get rid of that fat. And I think sometimes, you know, the term obesity is probably a very politically correct and um, maybe clinical term to use when somebody's holding on a lot of fat. Sometimes I just want to say, look, dude, you're fat. Sort, sort it out. And I don't know if people understand the, the, the severity of it. What, how would you put it? How would you explain it to people who are holding on to too much body fat as to why it's a problem exactly? Yeah, I mean, I guess the easiest way to put it, and I think the pandemic has really opened these people's eyes a little bit more because, you know, they never really, they sort of understood, okay, this might increase my blood pressure a little bit and, and things like that. But it was never like an acute risk of, of dying or an increased risk of dying rather quickly. Right. It's sort of like, I, I can figure this out when I'm older, I have time, like when I'm retired to like lose some weight. 
But with the pandemic, what's happened is, is, is you don't have time now. And so these, these, I think people who are holding on to excess fat are a little more receptive now that maybe if I fix holding on to this extra weight, particularly the fat in and around the organs, so I don't want to just like uh, say that this is people who are, are visibly fat. There's a lot of people that are thin that have fat in around their organs. I too. want to talk about that in, in a moment, uh, sure. about the subcutaneous and visceral. But anyway, please. Yeah, so essentially, I mean, what the studies show is that if you are, if you, if you have a BMI over 35, essentially, it increases your risk of dying from COVID by about 50%. And then if your BMI is over 40, or, and especially over 45, the risk doubles, essentially. And so I think to put it in that type of perspective, who wants to have a twofold higher risk of dying if they get this virus, right? And, and ultimately, that's the easiest sort of risk factor that I can throw out there. I mean, although having metabolic syndrome is even worse than that. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you got one person who has a high amount of subcutaneous fat and another person who has a high amount of visceral fat obviously the one who has high amount of visceral is going to be at higher risk but let's just say you don't have much visceral fat and it's a lot of subcutaneous are you still at risk is it still i don't know metabolically damaging are you still getting a lot of oxidative stress high risk of disease and that sort of thing it's much less than if someone has a lot of visceral fat. No, I'm, I'm talking about subcutaneous. Yeah, yeah, it's much less. The risk right. is much less than having a lot of subcut of visceral fat. So yeah, subcutaneous fat doesn't really is not really pro-inflammatory. Um, but what what we find is is people that are classified as obese with a large BMI typically do have a lot of visceral fat as well. Um, but on the flip side you're not protected if you're skinny. Uh, essentially, the, the, the easiest way to determine if someone has a lot of visceral fat is a DEXA scan, but not a lot of people get it. So what you can do, sort of like a, uh, an indirect way of determining if someone has a lot of fat in and around their organs is, is checking for metabolic syndrome, which is a constellation of three or more of five different risk factors, elevated blood pressure, blood glucose, waist circumference, triglycerides, um, in low HDL, if you have three or more of those risk factors, you're, you're very likely to have a lot of visceral fat. If you don't, don't have access to machinery and I don't know, you're like, do you know what? My, my metabolism super quick. I don't put on fat. Um, cause visibly I can't see it. Energy levels is all right. How would a person know, you know, let's say, a, a, a an, an endomorph, not endo, yeah, ectomorph, you know? They, they yeah. super slim fit in any clothes they want. They think they can eat everything they want. They probably got a lot of visceral fat going on. Yeah. How would they know if they're not going to get some sort of tests done? Is there a way to know? With, without getting any type of testing done? Yeah. No, no, there'd have to be some type of either blood test to associate with that type of visceral fat because other, what are you going to do other than looking at, at yourself in the mirror, which won't tell you if you, if you have fat in and around the organs or not. And essentially no other test, unless you directly visualize it, right, is really going to tell you, but there are easier tests that would um, sort of reflect an elevated level of visceral fat. 
sort of what we talked about, right? Having metabolic syndrome is, is highly indicative of someone who has a lot of visceral fat. Um, so, th so that's one potential way to, to know if, let's say you're it, it, essentially, it's not all, all just about visceral fat too, right? Are you metabolically healthy or are you not? Ultimately, that's really more important than how much visceral fat you have because that's going to also tell you how healthy your immune function is going to be. So there's no, there's no real good one uh, test to, to tell you if your immune cells are working well, but you can get tests to see if you're metabolically healthy. And if you're not, if you have three or, or more of those risk factors we just talked about, you're also probably, you also probably have immune dysfunction. Right, right, right. So more prone to sickness. You would say you're more prone to essentially any type of virus because your immune cells are going to be less cytotoxic. They don't work as well when you're, when you have metabolic syndrome. So you'd probably have some kind of symptoms other than obviously with someone who has a lot of visible, um, mm -hmm. visceral fat, you can see it without having to do a test. Whereas for someone who is more on the skinnier type, they'd probably have the symptoms of, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe depression, maybe the, the feelings, um, some other hormonal imbalances, which may give an indication that something's up there. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's certainly, I think a lot of people who do have those type of issues also have underlying metabolic health issues as well, because your own uh, nutrient status controls how well your neurotransmitters are releasing and, and how much, and then that controls your mental health. So uh, certainly metabolic health is connected to the, the brain and other things. But I think if you want to know if you're metabolically healthy, one of the best ways to sort of figure this out from people who are thin and would never know it would be an oral glucose tolerance test with an insulin assay. So most doctors they know to give 75 grams of glucose and they check how quickly and how much the glucose spikes after two hours. But most doctors don't check the insulin level because if you have a very high insulin level, keeping the glucose level normal, then you have metabolic dysfunction, but you would never know that in 75% of the cases, unless you checked the insulin level at the same time. So this is the problem. We only check glucose but if it looks good, the glucose level is normal, but you have a very high insulin level keeping it normal. Now you, now you can pick up those people that have metabolic dysfunction. Mm. Are there like home testing kits where you can do insulin checks and uh, glucose monitoring? At, not at home. No. no, you have to go right. to a lab to do this. An actual lab. Right. Right. How would a person know if they are, if their immune system isn't okay, no, no, not how would they know, but like, what is, what is, how would you explain when someone's immune system isn't like firing on all cylinders? Like what's going on there when it is, yeah, dysfunctional, what's, what's happening to the body? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually addressed this in one of our research papers. Um, essentially what we think, and this is not certainly across the board, and this is a little bit of a generalization. But essentially, two things are primarily happening. One is there is a reduction in your own endogenous production of type 1 interferons. These are essentially cytokines released by your own immune cells to help interfere with the virus. And 
that goes down in people who have more severe COVID cases. They don't produce as much inter as many type one interferons. And so they get a higher, higher viral load and they get more of their own healthy cells infected. And thus your body has to kill more of your own cells and you get damage to nearby cells as well, creating a cytokine storm. The other uh, consistent finding in people who have poor COVID outcomes is a reduction in the adaptive immune system. So we have an innate immune system, which responds really quickly, like natural killer cells, white blood cells, macrophages, and then we have an adaptive immune system, which is technically thought of as a slower response, but it really it acts sort of like the innate and adaptive at the same time, because your uh, adaptive immune system from previous coronaviruses can have a quick response even to SARS-CoV-2 because there is similarities in its structure. Mm -hmm. What ends up happening is there is a reduction in the cytotoxicity of your CD8 T killer cells. And so essentially they kill a virus in a very controlled apoptotic way and they don't create a lot of damage. But when, when the cytotoxicity and the function of those cells, those CD8 T killer cells goes down, now the pro-inflammatory immune cells like your macrophages, your white blood cells have to be relied upon more to kill the virus. And that is a much more pro-inflammatory killing. And you end up killing healthy bystander cells as well because it's not a targeted selective apoptotic killing. Mm -hmm. And so it's this lymphopenia, which is a reduction in your T cells and a reduction in your type one interferons. And essentially that's because you have poor nutrient status and you have metabolic dysfunction is what's driving those two things. Wow. That's uh I was quite in depth. <laughs> well, it better be if I wrote a book about it. I know, right? <laughs> I think in, in your book, you also mentioned about um, there was like some previous pandemics and um, in the past pandemics, um, you'd mentioned how people had lived through these conditions and that the, the, the living conditions was... Um, was very different to, to how it is now. Like, you know, people were eating like raw flesh. Um, and um, the, the, what, what I kind of got from it was that the, the immune system was probably a bit more robust than what it is now. Like, what, what I'm wondering is, you know, these people managed to survive in spite of the, the situation or the condition. And I'm wondering if, if we didn't have access to, you know, these amazing biohacks that we have here today and the uh, incredible medication, would we be wiped out pretty quick in comparison? I mean, so you, you bring up a valid point, essentially. I think what you're trying to get at is we may not be exposed to as many pathogens as we used to before and we constantly are washing our hands and in is the sterile environment that we're creating right constantly disinfecting everything um sort of dampening our immune system and i would say yes so there's so there's obviously amazing benefits to washing our hands right we no longer have you know mortality during childbirth um because we're sanitary but on the flip side how you build a strong immune system is through the introduction of pathogens. 
obviously ones that don't kill you, um, but ones that are going to uh, stimulate the immune system and you live, you live to fight another day, but your immune system is smarter and stronger from it. And we can sort of biohack our way through this actually. So there's, there's two really good ways to do this. And essentially it's functional fungi or consuming Baker's yeast beta-glucan. So essentially you're consuming you know, fungi or yeast, which your body is viewing as a pathogen. And essentially your immune cells engulf those uh, you know, beta-glucans and alpha-glucans alpha glucans are in fungi and, and Baker's yeast is just has beta glucans and the fragments are then dispersed and um, to the immune system. And it, it builds the immune system because the immune system thinks there's this pathogen, this foreign invader. And so that's why there's been a lot of studies that show if people take um, yeast beta glucan, they're at a much lower risk of having upper respiratory tract infections in like at least a dozen clinical studies. And it's using your own pathogen receptors and tricking your body to thinking you have an infection when you really don't by taking this foreign substance and it then your immune system mounts a greater attack and more immunosurveillance. They're, they're sort of, there's more in number, their cytotoxicity and their ability to engulf increases and they start moving quicker. It's called immunosurveillance. And this may even help with um, cancer as well, because our immune system is what surveys and looks for precancerous lesions like natural killer cells and then targets them for destruction. So building a healthy immune system, as we talk in the book, is intricately related to risk of cancer. Mm, mm. So would you say that our ability to become adaptive is as good, as, as good now as it was before? I think our nutrition, if we actually consume a healthy diet and are, and are sourcing from like regenerative farms is probably, we, we can be better than, than before, but we're probably not because right. everyone's eating a standard American diet. Right. And what would be, what, what would be the optimal way to get, you know, an adaptive immune system? What would be like, uh, you know, the creme de la creme? So, I got, so the first thing to do would be to try to source your food from regenerative farms because we know for a fact that eating foods from your typical uh, crops that use chemical fertilizers and that are from factory farm foods have lower nutrients. Um, so, you know, the levels of copper have gone down by 75% in most vegetables that aren't grown on these regenerative farms. Magnesium has gone down by about 35%. Um, in animal foods, we see 50% reductions in copper and 20% reductions in magnesium. So if you want to get a nutrient dense diet, it has to come from like a real true regenerative farm that's using things like manure and not chemical fertilizers. So that would be number one, healthy nutrient dense diet and sourcing, you know, pasture meats and eggs and organs and um, things like that. And regenerative crops too, which are much higher in nutrients and phytochemicals, phytopolyphenols than your typical farm. So that's number one. Number two would be to cut out all the crap, all the refined carbohydrates, sugars, and seed oils that are damaging your body. And so that actually might be the first thing you should do is actually cut out the junk and then make sure you're consuming these nutrient dense foods. And in the same token, a lot of people though don't eat a good balanced diet. So they might be eating, let's say, healthy pastured muscle meat, 
but they're not consuming the organs that have a lot of the nutrients that are lacking in muscle meat, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you also have to select the correct foods as well. So that, I, I guess that's the third tip is that make sure that you're not just consuming just muscle meat or you're not just consuming all plants. Like animal foods are extremely important and I do think pastured eggs should, should be in most people's diet if they can tolerate it because eggs have a lot of nutrients that are lacking in muscle meat and even a little bit in liver too. And then of course your exercise, right? Getting appropriate sunlight, um, not being exposed to light at night, which affects your melatonin levels. Um, sauna, if you can, or, or run um, with multiple layers of clothes on to boost your core body temperature. And we can talk about how heat shock proteins have antiviral effects. And exercise too, the appropriate amount. It's this hormesis, right? Like not overdoing exercise, but getting an appropriate amount. Same thing with sauna and all these other things. Mm. When you'd mentioned about um, jogging with like, a high level uh, layer of clothes on um, I tend to cycle and sometimes I'll jog as well um, but I, I kind of I, I kind of uh, my goal is to not wear as much clothes so I can feel the cold a bit more would you say that is also effective or would you say it's better to wrap up if it's cold <laughs> outside I think for you, you have access to a sauna, so you don't need to exercise with multiple layers. You and I both have clear light sauna, so there's no, there's no reason to do additional um, elevations in core body temperature if you're going into the sauna four to five times a day and already elevating core body temperature and releasing heat shock proteins. Mm -hmm. So if you like and if you feel better exercising um, to, and feeling the cold, by all means do that. Um, but you should still integrate some other way to boost your own core body temperature. Um, if, if you, right. If you like exercising without that uh, type of stuff. Mm. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Good to know. So for people who don't have a sauna, they might want to wrap up. What about yeah, um, cold exposure, I guess, cold showers, cold, mm, cold bath or plunge pool or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in, in in the book. We're pretty clear about there's not as much data with cold than right. heat, and that cold actually can make things worse potentially, right? Because the colder you are, the the greater the vi a virus can replicate, and that's why they initially propagate and infect in the cooler areas of the body, right? The the nasal passages, your throat, um, they like cold environments, and it's funny because RNA viruses are they're so elegant. They, they're so good at mutating and, and, but they have an Achilles heel and that's heat. And it seems to be across the board that these viruses are um, susceptible to heat. And we through millions of years have sort of hacked that, um, that Achilles heel of theirs by having a fever if we get an infection. And essentially that elevation in core body temperature reduces the replication of the virus, releases heat shock proteins, and heat shock protein 70 can bind to the viral ribonucleoprotein complex and prevent it from being exported. And that's how a virus replicates. Mm -hmm. And so if you heat shock animals before you give them lethal influenza, their mortality goes down, their lung pathology goes down and viral replication goes down. So we know from animal studies, even cold blooded animals, you throw them in essentially a sauna, boost their core body temperature and you heat shock them and then you give them a lethal virus, their mortality is much less 
had you not done that. So this works both in warm-blooded and cold-blooded animals. Mm. It's really cool. That is really interesting. So what, what about with the current pandemic? Are hotter countries less prone? Is, is, has any stats shown on that at all? Well, here, the problem is, is nobody stays out in the heat anymore. Everyone's inside in air conditioning. And so that's why it hasn't really paid. You know what I mean? Like who's really staying out in the blazing sun and raising their core body temperature to release heat shock proteins <laughs> for time? No one's doing that. Like seriously. And that's why you don't really see, um, you see this really happening with coronavirus. That you, you do see it in hot populations and areas as well. Because... From a, from a purely ambient temperature killing perspective, you have to be at 133 degrees Fahrenheit to have rapid killing of coronaviruses. Right. And so essentially, unless you're at like an extremely hot desert, it's never gonna be hot enough to, to sort of kill the virus through an ambient temperature perspective, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's your thoughts on NAD? I've, I, I remember just hearing about, I think the first, for one of the first people I heard speaking about it was uh, Dr. Rona Patrick. Is that her name, Dr. Rona Patrick? I remember checking out her podcast and, um, wow. I, I, <laughs> as she was talking on the podcast, I was thinking, does this woman take a break? Like she says so much incredible stuff. Um, but what I do like is when somebody's, speaking about something that I'm not familiar with, that they stop and they kind of take it from a different angle and they kind of paraphrase it and link it to things that you understand. Whereas with her, she gives a real clinical perspective, which got me pretty confused. And I thought to myself, let me see how much NAD cost if I was to go out and buy it. And um, it was pretty expensive in comparison to a lot of other supplements which are out there on the market. And then I've heard so many different conflicting stuff with the different types of NAD, which is available. Um, and I'm like, ah, do you know what? This is all confusing to me. So what, what is, um, okay. So from what I understand, NAD, if, if your body is, uh, as you get older, you have less NAD, um, and a small amount of NAD, or as it goes down, you, you have a higher risk of, um, oxidative stress and, um, I don't know, diseases, uh, weaker immune system and that sort of thing. Um, but what is NAD exactly? And who, who, who needs to focus on, um, buying more of it if you can? And, uh, what is the best form that you can get? If that's not yeah. too much in one question. <laughs> well, I mean, essentially, so NAD is essentially like an enzyme that runs the electron transport chain. And what you were saying is, is what people should really understand. It's just a reflection of poor metabolic health, essentially, and disease, and disease in the body. So supplementing with um, NAD boosters like NMN or NR, which is nic nicotinamide riboside, Yes, that does temporarily boost NAD levels, but you're not fixing the underlying cause of the low NAD. So I think taking those supplements is very, very low on the list of uh, addressing low NAD in the body, which is essentially you need to address the root causes, right? The oxidative stress, the poor diet, poor exercise that's contributing to your low NAD. 
And um, that's really the, the, the key story here is not to take NAD boosters. It's to figure out why you are depleted in NAD, which again, all this stuff comes down to diet and exercise essentially and sunlight and just lifestyle. So to, to safeguard your NAD levels is just practicing a healthy lifestyle. hundred percent. And you don't need to necessarily look for these supplements. No, you need to look for the root for the root cause of NAD deficiency. You fix that. You're actually fixing, fixing the problem that not just low NAD, but all the other problems that are happening throughout the body. That is, uh, that's great to know. Common sense, right? Roger, sometimes that beats, uh, scientific uh, studies <laughs> no and like when i was looking at all these nad supplements and yeah nicotinamide riboside and then there's the other one what was the other one uh nmn and, the and then, mm, yeah and then people are saying oh this one's better than that one and all of this and and all you need to do is just live a healthy life without spending lots of money on that i mean i was seeing tablets which are like um i don't know how many was in there maybe about 60 for about or maybe less, or maybe 30 for about 100 pounds, 110 pounds. I was thinking, wow, this, this must be good stuff. Like, but okay, cool. Good to know. Good to know. Um, you have some people that are born with autoimmune immune problems. Is there a way of reversing that? Or is it like, they're going to have to live off medication for the rest of their life. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it depends on what's causing it. Right. And is there, there's definitely studies associating um, having low vitamin D with autoimmunity because vitamin D controls um, the, the immune cells, the B cells that produce antibodies. And if you start producing autoantibodies against yourself, then that's a problem. So Essentially, think of, think of autoimmune conditions as a dysregulation in your immune system and what controls your immune system, vitamins and minerals at the end of the day, and not having a toxic load of oxidative stress. So having a lot of oxidative stress can damage the immune system and then damage the checkpoints that are in place for producing autoantibodies against yourself. And this, is, this happens with COVID too. We're seeing that about 10 to 15% of people who have poor COVID outcomes have autoantibodies against their own type one interferons. So that's why they're, they're not able to clear the virus well because they're essentially attacking their own type one interferons. So, and that could be due to the oxidative stress and damage that has been caused by the, you know, by the virus, which is ultimately due to the poor lifestyle. <laughs> right back to that again yeah. yeah that is so funny it's funny and it's not funny yeah because it's it's almost like <laughs> everything just stems back to just have a healthy lifestyle yeah <laughs> you know yeah sometimes when people say okay what's the what's the best way to lose weight and or just you know have have a six-pack and sometimes i i feel a bit frustrated because I, I just think just stop eating shit yeah and and i literally say it it just depends on how i'm feeling sometimes i'll try and be you know very uh you know educational or um, yeah. politically correct and sometimes i'm like dude just stop eating shit man that's your problem <laughs> you right. know you're fat you're eating shit like <laughs> 
Um, but that's interesting. That is interesting. Uh, so those autoimmunity and you got people who bring the uh, autoimmunity. Um, they're not born with it, but it's created through lifestyle as well. Yeah. Yes. Right. The um, glutathione that we have in our body has, I don't know, been coined the master detoxifier or something like that. Um, are there any other... Well, I know there would be, but what are the other main detoxifying things that we have in our body that we need to be um, considerate of to make sure is functioning to detoxify? Yeah, so like, that's a good point. So glutathione is, yes, it is an antioxidant, um, but there are so many other antioxidants and antioxidant enzymes in the body. So for example, superoxide dismutase, there's actually three different forms of that, and, and that essentially helps reduce oxidative stress. Um, but in order for those enzymes to work, um, they have to have zinc and copper attached to them for superoxide dismutase um, in the cytoplasm or outside of the cell. And then within the cell, superoxide dismutase is bound to manganese. So, so certain minerals literally make up some of our own antioxidant defense enzymes. But the best way to boost all of these, because there's the list is a lot. There's catalase, glutathione peroxidase, thioredoxin reductase, methionine sulfoxide reductase. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's a ton of antioxidant enzymes. In order to boost all of those at the same time, there's something called NRF2 activators. So that's how you want to do it. You want to boost your own endogenous antioxidant response element that lifts more than just glutathione. It lifts all these antioxidants. And there's different ways to do this. Plant polyphenols can uh, inhibit the inhibitor of NRF2 and, and essentially activate the current NRF2 that you have. So there's something called KEEP1 that binds to NRF2 and prevents it from working. And plant polyphenols sort of kind of get rid of KEEP1 and allows it to work. But then there's things that can literally boost the transcription of NRF2 and then all your antioxidant defense enzymes. And that would be things like... Um, melatonin seems to actually increase the transcription of NRF2, which is why in uh, a lot of studies, melatonin is now showing that melatonin use is associated with an 83% lower risk of dying from COVID, a 30 to 50% uh, lower risk of even testing positive for COVID. And there, there was a recent case series that showed the hospital stay in COVID patients was five days less and there, no one died or no one was mechanically ventilated out of those 10 people that got high doses of melatonin in four divided doses, whereas they should have, the mortality rate and ventilation rate should have been 20 to 40% based on similar cases that were being hospitalized at the same time. Right. Wow. So melatonin, like what induced as a supplement or injection or something to not yeah, so naturally occurring? Yeah. So, I mean, melatonin is secreted throughout the day more than just your, um, in your brain for sleep. Uh, your immune cells produce it, um, and you, it's even produced from serotonin in the gut as well. And other other cells produce it throughout the day, so it's not just like this um, sleep hormone. It's actually an antioxidant that's secreted throughout the entire day. It can free, freely diffuse into any cell, just like molecular hydrogen can. I actually I, I think of melatonin sort of like molecular hydrogen in that when it detoxifies an oxidant, it doesn't become a prooxidant, which is unique to both of those. 
And both of them can freely pass into any cell membrane and get to the oxidative stress. Whereas, you know, you have your water-soluble antioxidants that can only detoxify water-soluble oxidants, and then you have your fat-soluble. Melatonin and molecular hydrogen can go anywhere, which is really cool. I didn't know that about the, uh, about, um, yeah, melatonin. I knew that about the hydrogen. That yeah. It, you know, just, uh, it's not, it's not, um, it's, it's, it's like a detoxifier as well, but without, um, so, uh, without affecting things that don't need to be affected. Right. Correct. Sense. Yes. It, it targets just the, the damaging oxidants. Cause there are, how hormesis works is we actually get some oxidative stress and then we're stronger from it. So you don't want to fully suppress all oxidative stress, which is why molecular hydrogen is really good because it primarily targets toxic hydroxyl radicals and peroxynitrite, which really don't have much benefit and don't have much hormetic benefit, which is why molecular hydrogen is so much better than your typical antioxidant. Um, but the studies, uh, the, the dose that was used for melatonin in, in that uh, case series of COVID pneumonia patients, uh, the total dose used for the entire day was between 36 and 72 milligrams, and it was in four divided doses. So essentially 10 to 20 milligrams four times a day, which is much higher than like the one to five milligrams most people take um, prior to going to bed. Mm. To right, right, cool. A, a moment ago, you mentioned about uh, uh, polyphenols and its benefits yeah. is it i'm hearing different stuff about polyphenols and i think obviously there's going to be a, a 180 degree perspective when when you're looking at it from a, um, a carnivore's eyes yeah. they just see it as poison um how 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 would you make a a, a non-biased um perspective on that for people who would look at it from uh, i don't know omnivore and a carnivore would you be able yeah to i mean ultimately i think it comes down to personal tolerance if you can tolerate these substances um then integrating some of them seems to have benefit if you don't tolerate them okay that's fine it, but is there some i would sort of challenge some people that would if using a little bit of elderberry for a week if you got a virus if you can tolerate that then there's some good data that that may help especially with influenza and the common cold because there is a meta-analysis with standardized standardized elderberry extracts that they cut the duration of the common cold or flu by two to four days so are you that carnivore are you that anti taking an elderberry for like a week uh, I mean, if your body truly can't handle that, okay. But, um, you know, there is some evidence for these plant polyphenols. Mm, right. Yeah. And, you know, it's things like that. Are you, you know, are you that carnivore? And that's, that's a valid statement because, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I do think to myself, I'm not trying to be any particular, you know, even directly uh, omnivore. Like if I feel at a certain stage, uh, a certain day, I might just be completely carnivore. It might just be that for one particular day. And then it might be like a, a full 24 hour fast. I kind of go by how I feel really. And when, when people are very just like one-sided, it must be this. I think um, 
almost as if they're missing the point of life, really. You're, you do you do miss a different perspective, which you can take little pieces from that perspective. You don't have to take the whole thing, but there there's little golden nuggets of great information from both sides, right? I think animal foods are more nutrient dense. They have the active forms of the vitamins. So that's great to nourish your immune system, but it's the plant polyphenols that have true antiviral effects that have been, that have structures that have been shown to inhibit binding of viruses to cells, inhibit the fusion, inhibit the replication, reduce the duration of the common cold and influenza in certain cases. Um, eating eggs has not been shown to do that. So if you can combine both and boost your own nutrient status with animal foods and also some plant polyphenols, which has been shown to even reduce the harms from cooking uh, things like meat, um, and, and you don't even have to eat a plant. You could just drink coffee and get some of these benefits. Mm. Uh, but some, are you that carnivore <laughs> that you refuse to drink liquid from a coffee bean, right? Like it just it, it depends on where you are in the spectrum. Mm, mm, mm. Like I will not. I will, like if. Are you that carnivore that you refuse to put black pepper on your eggs? <laughs> uh, uh, I think I've seen a few videos uh, of people who are carnivores, but like you know, they're cooking. They've gone out. They've hunted, but they're seasoning their food. So maybe they're not full carnival then, right? Most aren't. Even Sean Baker uh, seasons his eggs with black pepper, which is kind of why I made that joke. Awesome. <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna note that down and provoke a carnivore somewhere right um so okay so you've got like natural sources of boosting your immune system through you know metabolic flexibility and heat shock proteins and um all these all these things as you mentioned but what about the slightly unnatural way uh, of of vaccinations You've got, I remember doing a post recently saying, um, I, I asked the question to, to people in saying, in 2021, what's your, what are you looking forward to? And a lot of people said, I'm looking forward to a vaccination. And I was like, wow. I wasn't expecting that. I really wasn't. Um, <laughs> What's your thoughts um, on a vaccination for every single person on the globe? Do you think that's necessary? Well, so my response to the reaction is probably because they believe if this vaccine comes out, life can go back to normal. So I, I, don't, I don't think they're like, yes, I love getting a shot in my arm. But I think they're like, if, if we get this vaccine, they're under the belief that now life can go back to normal. Right? and that they're not at risk of, of coronavirus. But they have to think about this a, a little bit logically. Number one, coronavirus isn't the only virus out there. A lot of people die of the flu every year. There's other viruses that could surface, and this vaccine is not going to protect you from new viruses surfacing. So it's a false sense of security in that aspect. And then ultimately, even responses to vaccines are determined by your own metabolic health and nutrient status. And so even the response to these vaccines is going to vary depending on the person and probably will improve if you have better metabolic health. So you still, these people still need to understand that metabolic health and, and good nutrient status is, is important even in vaccination, extremely important. 
Now, my, my thoughts on this virus or this vaccine to this virus are several fold. Number one, we've never had a messenger RNA vaccine that forces your body to produce a spike protein found in SARS-CoV-2 to try to develop um, immunity. So your own cells are going to start producing the spike protein on SARS-CoV-2 with this vaccine to, to sort of train your immune system to see the spike protein and, and then if you actually get it, hopefully handle the virus better. That's, that's how in theoretically it's supposed to work. But we got to understand this is an RNA virus, right? This is kind of like uh, influenza is an RNA virus, right? Common cold is an RNA virus. Um, you have to get the influenza vaccine every year and it's never fully effective. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case, that this vaccine isn't going to be fully effective, but even the studies have shown anywhere from like 70 to maybe 95% effective. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, but what does the effective really mean? It's not like these people have gotten the vaccine and then you gave them coronavirus. You're never going to do that to prove that it actually prevents um, complications. So truly, um, especially or being so early out, there's no definitive proof, right? Really what you need to do at a minimum is you have to take an animal model, you have to give them a vaccine, and then you have to inject them with the coronavirus and prove that this vaccine did, does not cause disease once you vaccinate the animal. I don't even know if there's studies showing that with these vaccines. So that, that's interesting. So the current studies in humans are simply looking at positivity rates. Now, it's, most of these studies are only based on like 100 people. So about 10 people will get test positive on the placebo, or excuse me, 10 that got the vaccine will test positive, and 90 tested positive that didn't. That's a very small number of, of people, right? And how, how are these numbers being adjudicated? Is the study sponsor involved? Like, or is this a, is this a contract research organization with complete unbias to the, to the documentation of these results? And I've published uh, several papers showing that study sponsorship involvement in clinical studies consistently um, alters the results in generally in favor of the study sponsor. Whereas if you look in the same study from sites that were independently monitored by a contract research organization, you can sometimes find the opposite where the drug is even harmful. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there's, some, there's probably some type of issue going on that's making, and I don't want to, you know, I, I got to be careful with my words, that could potentially be making this intervention beneficial when it could, it could might not actually be. And so I personally would like to know more about the safety as well before I get the vaccine. Um, because who knows, who knows in the long term what could happen by forcing your own cells to produce a spike protein. I don't know. We, and we never, don't have data. It's never been done before, right? This is the of its kind. Why do you think this approach was taken as opposed to, you know, the, uh, the usual method? Is it because, um, uh, the, the actual virus is too strong and it will take over the body if a, a small amount was injected? Are you say, so? What's your question, Roger? Like, so, like, are we trying to vaccinate against COVID or? Yeah. So, it, with with this new method, this RNA 
method, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so this is a new method. Is there any reason why this method has been chosen over the traditional method of injecting a very small amount in the body so that our own antibodies and, you know, kill it, recognize it and build around it? That's the traditional method, right? I might not have said it as. Yeah, you're right. They, they sort of take like a, a quote unquote declawed version, a non-virulent version of the flu. They inject it with you and you develop antibodies and ho hopefully your T cells respond to it as well. This new approach is, is because it's a different virus. And um, I think they're trying to develop more higher efficacy. So if you look traditionally at your typical flu vaccines through that method, they're maybe only about 50% effective. And they're trying to figure out a way to make, to make this much higher efficacious. So 70 to 90% by making your own cells produce that spike protein and sort of train it in a different way, which, you know, the theory is, is that you'll develop a better immune response to it. But I don't know. I don't know is if, well, number one, there's different strains of coronavirus. So I don't know if this method is going to actually make you a, a sort of pr prone to disease from every single strain that's floating out there, not to mention it does mutate. We know this virus does mutate. It might not mutate as quickly as the flu, um, but it does. So there's probably going to be a need for boosters too. So you're not, you're probably not even, what people need to understand is you're not going to be probably fully immune, even if you get the, the two doses of this virus, because it's going to mutate. And that's, that's the bottom line. Mm. Wow. Okay. I think I covered everything. I think so. Is there anything else you feel um, might be good to cover from, from an immunity perspective? I think the only thing uh, we didn't really touch on is um, magnesium and salt. So we had, I had sort of, we were talking about how there's this um, deficiency in the T cells um, and their cytotoxicity of, of the CD8 T killer cells in people who have poor COVID outcomes. In people who have uh, genetically low magnesium in their immune cells, they have chronic activation of Epstein-Barr in a significantly higher rate of lymphoma. Now, 95% of us have Epstein-Barr, but it's not a problem. But these people have low magnesium in their immune cells and their Epstein-Barr is chronically activated because of it. So the point of that is, is that just having one deficiency magnesium in your immune cell can increase the activation of a virus that 95% of us are infected with and potentially increase the risk of lymphoma. So uh, it just goes to show you how important magnesium is to the immune system. And it also is required to activate vitamin D. And the other thing we didn't talk about was salt, how our body utilizes salt to create stomach acid to kill pathogens. Our immune cells secrete uh, chloride, which is a part of salt to kill pathogens. It's called hypochlorous acid. And then our immune cells also produce um, taurine chloramine, which the chloramine is chloride only, and you only get that through ingesting salt to actually help with um, inflammation from cytokine storms. So our immune system literally utilizes this essential nutrient that we consume through salt to kill pathogens and to help sort of calm inflammatory cytokine storms. 
And even, this is really interesting, one study uh, looked at people that had upper respiratory tract infections Within 48 hours, they gave them a, a salt gargle and a, a sterile water with salt in it, and they did like a nasal irrigation. And that was able to reduce the duration of the upper respiratory tract infection by a couple days. It significantly reduced viral shedding, and it reduced household contact spread. So salt is like sort of like your universal like antiviral, antibacterial agent. And we cover that in the book too. Wow, wow. So I'm assuming not all salts are created equal. Um, are there any particular salts that you would recommend for? I would say um, I like any unrefined uh, rock type of rock, pink rock salt that contains iodine essentially uh, because your refined salts are just going to be made up of sodium and chloride. Whereas you can, can get salts that have either high amounts of iodine through pink rock salts, or if you're looking for more magnesium, there are salts from Norway or um, Australia that actually have a lot of magnesium in them. So you can source different salts for different nutrients depending on you know, what you're lacking. Okay. Do, do you have any names of salts that you recommend personally that you use on a regular basis? Well, I don't personally recommend them, but I would say um, if... I recall the one salt company was called Salt Verk, which had up to 180 milligrams of magnesium per 10 grams of salt. And then, you know, you have your traditional Himalayan salts, right, that have iodine or Redmond Real Salt, which is iodine too. Mm. Um, I lost what you said. What was the first one you said? Uh, salt Verk. Salt Verk. Yeah. Uh, sounds Polish or something. Yeah, I think it's like Norwegian or something. It's been a while since I've looked them up. <laughs> and magnesium, are there any particular, there's so many different uh, uh, blends of magnesium, isn't there? Different types. Are there yeah. any particular types or type that a person should ingest or take? Yeah, I think it's always good to get magnesium from food. And then I also try to get it through water because it's already ionized. And in order to absorb magnesium, unless you chelate it to an amino acid, it needs to be dissolved in solution and have a charge. And high magnesium mineral waters are the best way to do that. And kind of some of the, some of the problems with uh, chelated magnesiums is we don't know how well they dissociate once they get absorbed and it has to dissociate from the molecule to get into the cell. So we just need a little more information on which magnesiums can actually do that well and get into the cell well, even though they have good bioavailability. Mm -hmm. I know you do a magnesium as well, isn't it? Yeah. So magnesium, um, L3 and eight or magteen is something I'll take in the morning. Um, if I want to feel like activated or have energy to focus, it's very good for focus because um, magnesium L3 is the only magnesium that has been shown to significantly increase brain magnesium levels. And that's been shown to increase synapse density, plasticity and function and synapses are how our neurons communicate. So um, that particular form is, is pretty good for focus for, at least for me. Mm -hmm. Would you say the more prone to disease or the more sick you are, the more magnesium you need possibly? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So disease taxes your magnesium status, whether it be through higher inflammation and oxidative stress requiring more magnesium for antioxidants and, and rather than just general 
other functions. So it's taxing your magnesium status because the magnesium molecules now have to produce more ATP for the antioxidant enzymes to work and um, be kind of shifted away from their normal tasks to deal with the oxidative stress. So there's like a demand. Um, and if you place more demand on the system, the nutrients are going to suffer in other parts of the body. And then of course, eating a diet high in sugar is going to deplete magnesium from the body, not only from the elevated insulin, which causes you to lose magnesium in the urine, but creating an insulin resistant cell, which reduces the ability to even get magnesium into the cell. So the best way to fix your magnesium status really is to improve your metabolic health so your cells can even utilize it. So most people's metabolic health is, it has plummeted anyway. Right. Um, and so they're, they're not, they're not consume, consuming enough. They're probably eating quite a lot of sugar. So that okay. brings them in negative. Yeah. Chances are their stress levels are pretty high mm-hmm. and they're sick more often. So it's just depleting. They're going in minus, minus, minus. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. So would you be able to put it in numbers? What, let's say, an average amount is? And like, if someone who's got, I don't know, high stress levels, how much they might need to take to try and be on equilibrium um, so that they can function properly? So most people are consuming about 200 to 250 milligrams of magnesium per day. And you typically need about 180 milligrams just to maintain normal balance in a healthy person. We don't really have good studies on um, people who, like you had just described, how much they need just to maintain balance and not become slowly depleted and die of magnesium deficiency. But it's probably pretty close to what people are consuming. It's probably close to that 200 to 250 milligram level. And so people are probably just like barely maintaining a positive status, let alone um, an optimal status to saturate their tissues and enzymes so they're working properly. And and for that type of uh, optimal enzyme function and protection from oxidative stress, you're probably more on the four to 500 milligram magnesium level needed to be consumed per day. Mm-hmm. I need to check to see how much uh, milligrams is in the one that I take. I don't, don't know if it's around, I'm sure it says 500 a day. I think you got to look at the elemental magnesium though in it. Yeah. The actual elemental, but I mean, most people probably could use another couple hundred milligrams of elemental magnesium per day. Mm. I wish I had it with me right now. I'd run through it with you, but it's a uh, magnesium breakthrough by, by optimizers. I don't know if, if you've looked at theirs at all. No, no, they've got seven different types of magnesiums in there. They're pretty um, scientific when it comes to, you know, the whole formulation thing. Well, yeah, look, man, it's been fantastic. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. We covered a lot, covered a lot been amazing look when you're bringing out a next book come back on again <laughs> you know it man I'll, I'll be i'll be here so absolutely all right brilliant james you have an incredible day um yeah i think i'm gonna go for a jog yeah I think there I'm- you go enjoy enjoy that cold weather <laughs> yeah will do thanks again you take care right. you too god bless thank you for tuning in today's episode 
Any guests which I have on the show really provide some golden nuggets and useful life-changing tips. So always feel free to check out their social media platforms or website links, which will be written in the show notes. These shows are financed by my sponsors, so your contributions are always greatly appreciated. Any clickable links with discount codes will not only provide you with the best services, but will help out the podcast too. So thank you. If you do like the Roger Snipe Show podcasts, then why not give it a review? A five star would be awesome, but some great feedback on what you liked about the show or what you would have liked to hear would be helpful too. Until next time.